You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni in Yerushalayim, Mirakadish. I'm Avram Kivalevich. Dr. Juni, the period that we are quite in. No, it's not Corona, of course. We've been in there for almost a year, uh, perhaps more than a year. Uh, but what we're talking about is the period of our, and our holiday season of Alter going into Nissan. And as you know from the Talmud, that they fuse these two months, these two Jewish months together as months of celebration, of anticipation, of redemption. Um, But besides that spiritual aspect of it, which is the idea of God being more involved in our lives, and who knows, maybe the the Messiah is coming, there's also what is involved here, which is quite a bit of drink, uh, wine specifically, but as we know, Purim uh, lends itself to more than just cor- uncorking a bottle of Chablis or uh, of Merlot, but a- actually a lot of drinking um, to the point that uh, it has been considered a major health issue uh, and, and and health in, the, in terms of uh, on, on all levels, in terms of accidents and hospitalizations, uh, and we've been hearing about it for many years, uh, the allowance of young men and perhaps women as well to drink with abandon. And that, as we know, is not just a cultural acceptance, Dr. J, you know this, but it's actually codified in, in, in Jewish law in many places that one of the, the cardinal principles of the day is to get plastered uh, or levasem bapuria to be to be happily and clearly drunk, and this has led to a lot of drinking and partying. Which, of course, in, in in the Corona world, perhaps we're not going to have the parties, but I think maybe this might be a, a chance for us to talk about your feelings about this phenomena, Purim related specific, but in general, the idea of uh, imbibing and drinking. And uh, I know that before we started recording, we all, I also mentioned, if you could also talk about the idea of a social drink, the idea not necessarily of getting smashed, but even the idea of using drink as a sort of salve and a balm to get you through the day. Okay, uh, I've mixed your drink. Uh, it's time for you to start sipping at it and spewing out what you need to say. Okay, I like the sipping. I don't like the spewing connotation. Okay. Um, so, hello. Uh, so, again, I, I, let me just say, I don't know, um, I don't have much social intellectual sense, so I can't really speak about social prescriptions. I do know individuals. I know individuals individuals react and what it means to them, so I speak from that perspective. So, let me start with a couple of, um, of items. Um, there, any kind of drug, any kind of intoxicant, any kind of medication you take, there are two aspects going on. There's an aspect of the psychological and there's the aspect of the actual physiological. And there is an interesting um, um, divergence in alcohol. Uh, for instance, the Pasuk says, Yain the Samach Lavav Enosh, okay? Um, I don't agree. I'm sorry. I don't agree. Alcohol is a depressant. There's no question. From a physiological point of view, giving a shot of alcohol is the same as giving somebody an injection of a depressant, which means it will take your physiology, your body. I'm sorry, depression. What is depression? Depression has two aspects to it. Depression has the psychological aspect that you feel sad and hopeless and uh, and uh, things are not working out, and if you really push it, you're going to get suicidal. That's the psychological. But that comes from a physiological state. In other words, the drug never affects your psychology. The drug affects your physiology. So basically, 
there is a physiology, a distinct physiology, a profile of what depression looks like. And that's what it does to the body. And that engenders these kinds of thoughts and feelings. So um, to call it something that makes you happy, it's not a stimulant. It's not something that makes you euphoric. It's not something that makes you manic. So I don't get that possible. On the other hand, there is another aspect to, um, to alcohol. There's two aspects, really. One of them is that it destroys your good judgment. The other is that it disinhibits you. And that's physiological. So let me tell you a cute story, an anecdote, which, uh, you know, if my mother were around, she would freak out about this. But um, she unfortunately is not around, so I can tell you. Um, in college, I used to be a fairly good drinker, okay? As everybody else was. That was the minute, not just on Purim. You know, uh, every uh, every weekend, you know? So, and basically, in those days, they had come up with the notion of designated driver, so I was the designated driver on every weekend. What did that mean? That meant that I drank like everybody else, but I was able to drive even though I was drunk. Okay, sounds risky. I don't prescribe this to anybody, and I hope I don't get sued for this by somebody who follows suit. But I'll tell you what the logic is. I knew my psychology very well at that point. I was in graduate school. And I knew that alcohol basically interferes with your judgment. So... The reason why so many people get into accidents when they're drunk, I'm not talking when they're totally passed out, but when they're moderately nicely drunk, a couple of drinks, is because their judgment is off. So they see a car coming, they say, yes, I can make it in time. They see a light changing, yes, I can make it in time. So I knew judgment is off. So I knew anytime I knew what judgment was, anytime I make a judgment, I'm not going to do it. So people in the car were yelling, Sam, what's with you? Why are you stopping? Is the, the, the light is just beginning to change. I said, forget it. You drive yourself. I'm not going to drive. I'm going to stop. If there's a car coming, even though there was no chance it's going to hit me, forget it. I let him go. I, I never passed anyone. And I made it through. Okay, so it's an interesting concept there that judgment is off. Also, reaction time is off, which is another half of it. And, okay, so that's one of them. The other thing is that alcohol is a disinhibitor which means that basically before you do something, you have certain judgments that's coming, either judgments of fact, judgments of retribution, judgments of repercussions, that is impaired. So many things that you generally would not do because you inhibit yourself saying, if I do this, this is going to happen, that's going to happen. So in other words, you can know it logically, but you also need an inhibitor which says, because of that, Sam, don't do it. Okay, that gets weak. So basically, alcohol is quite dangerous from a, um, shall we say, epidemiological point of view, because alcohol leads to many activities that people would not do in good judgment. Alcohol can lead to drug addiction. How? Because somebody comes over to you and says, hey, I got this great drug. You want to try it? You say, no, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it will do to me. But when you're under the influence of alcohol, you have a better chance of saying yes. Or if somebody comes to you with some sugar in the deal, to rob a bank, whatever it is, usually you say, no, I don't even know you. Don't, you know, I, give me $5, I'll give you back 500 No, I'm not going to do it. But when you're under the influence of alcohol, before you're smashed out, your judgment is off you, and your inhibition is off. So you don't stop yourself, you jump into it. So that's the overall picture. Um, so, um, yeah, so let me just jump in here for a second and, and talk about your anecdote. I think what, one of the things that you, you state, which... I think anyone who's been drunk more than once realizes is that there are there, there's a certain power that you can rustle up within you to resist like what you did when you were driving like you were able to talk to yourself and say look I know myself and I know that uh like you said my reaction time is 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 not as sharp as it was so I'm going to actually push myself the other way, right? And that's the way, and I, for example, I, I'll, I'll throw you an anecdote. Um, in the 40-some years almost that I've been married, um, I know that there's certain things I can't say. Before I was married and before I would, I, I would just drink and people would say, you wouldn't believe the stuff that you were saying. After I got married, I realized the repercussions since you're bonded to another person. And despite how much I was going to drink, I would be able to 
keep my mouth shut <laughs> because I had talked to myself. I had firmly insisted somehow that that part of that that wasn't going to happen. And despite, you know, I, I, I would sense the knocking on the door that it's going to come out. I was able to push it back. And that was the force of will that was stronger than the drink. And I think that's what was going on when you were driving. You, you... No, no, okay, let me, let me make it. First, let me say you're a much better man than I am, okay? But I think you have to make the difference between judgment and disinhibition. In other words, the reason why people get into accidents is because they say to themselves, my judgment is good. I can do it just as well, and that's a mistake, okay? The other thing that you're mentioning is the inhibition aspect. And there, even if you resolve to yourself, like, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, that's based on an injunction, on an inhibition. But the inhibitions will be knocked away. So I would say you have a much better chance of, I mean, you have a better chance of failing in both of our efforts, regardless. But I think knowing that your judgment is off is a contradiction to saying my judgment is not off. Whereas inhibition, the very thing that stops you from doing it, that itself is going to get eradicated. You've resolved not to say it, and then you say, you know what? I think it's important to say it anyway. And you don't realize that without those inhibitions, you're going to get in a lot of hot water, and you're going to regret this for the rest of your life, but you can't inhibit yourself. That's not what went on with my judgment. It's just that my judgment was off, and I knew, Sam, your judgment, for instance, let's say I am taking Valium because I'm going to have an MRI. So I know I'm not going to do a lot of things because I just don't have it. I don't have the sharpness. And that's in contradiction to people saying, yes, I have the sharpness. Whereas inhibition is not a question, yes or no. It's a question, is this a good idea? Well, that's, that's, then you'll say, yes, it is a good idea. And you get into trouble. I can tell you, my wife used to have a great time with me before she was my wife. If she ever seen me, I'm Purim or something. Because she says, then I'd find out all about you, Sam. And she did. She said, this is great. I found out all the information. I guess it wasn't too too uh, fatal, but it was there nonetheless. Okay. But anyway, um, let's just talk about having to drink. You know, Adela Yada. Okay. That, to me is uh, something that's quite risky because when you're no low yada and your actual perceptions are off, I don't know what you're up to. So if you're doing it within a safe environment, perhaps you have some buddies who will watch over you, but when you're all doing it together, you know, they, um, there's no limit. So I don't know. I don't know, but I guess maybe in Talmudic times, people uh, were watching for each other or there were always some non-drinkers there or perhaps the women didn't drink. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't know uh, how that. Okay, so now you now you're sort of in my wheelhouse a little bit, and, and, and yours too, really, because this is one of the most famous statements uh, in the Talmud and Masechtas Megillah about Chaya Benish Rabsumi Puri, which I quoted the first part, but I didn't quote the last part, which is Ad Yoda, till the point that you lose your ability to understand things, and this has been interpreted so often by anti-drinkers as either not. The, the law, that it was a speculation, that there was a certain group that felt this might be true, but then it was rejected. And you know, the Talmud, of course, has the story right afterwards about the, about the Rabbah and Rabzeira, the two of the greatest Amaroyim, where um, Rabbah actually kills Rabzeira, according to the Gemara, Shochat Rabzeira, he actually uh, slaughters him and whatever that means. But uh, we know that the Talmudists not uh, of later era have did their darndest to basically uh, soft pedal this or jettison it from Jewish law. And you're, you're in good company. Many say, no, that can't be the right thing. Uh, it it might've been true then, but it can't be true now. It wasn't even true then. The Talmud only, uh, lets it fly as a, as a balloon-like idea, but then immediately punctures it and says that that's really not what should be happening. So, you know, to, to on the other hand, we know that for so many uh, sec- sections of our, of, our, of our Jewish life, and even really in the halacha, if you take a look in Shulchan Aruch, it is there. And, and, the, and the Shulchan Aruch actually speaks about uh, social situations where one, it's in the in, 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 Hilchas, in Hilchas Megillah, it talks about people getting into fights, people getting into jousting, people uh, damaging and not being responsible for it. 
because of the understanding that people were going to be drunk. And since it was a day that everybody sort of threw their cards in and knew what was going on, so you, you had no right to pursue any civil cases against somebody who happened to hurt you uh, during Purim. So we do see, what I'm trying to point out, we see from the history of, of a real reading of the halachic sources, is that it continued past the ages of the Talmud, and it continued very, very deep into our history of, uh, of Purim being such a day. Uh, let me just add one thing here, which I think you might appreciate. I think that it was extremely, the reason why, despite all the warnings from the pietists who said that uh, no one should drink, look how terrible it is, look at Noah, look at all the terrible, look at Lot, look at all what happens when you drink. The reason why it continued to to be this day of clowning and debauchery and, and letting loose was because of the terrible um, forces around them during the Middle Ages that made them feel that they had no uh, freedom, that they were uh, a, a, a despised, hated minority that was constantly kicked around, that their life was fickle, nothing could, could they can never really extract themselves. This was a day that they were allowed to fantasize, and it became very important uh, in, in people's social calendar that there was a day that they could somehow dream and be beyond in contrast to the ugliness and terror that reigned and i think that's the reason why honestly uh the custom of drinking until that extent continued it was it was all part of the 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 this the i guess i don't know the way you would call it it was it was a therapy that was needed one day a year and everybody was part of it and it, it, it gave them i would say i don't know if you would agree it gave them uh something to to think about happily the whole year round <laughs> at least one day a year we we, we could forget our tsaras and live in a different world and i think that's the reason why go ahead okay, so first a couple of my buttons now so i have to come in okay again for people who are new over here i'm a freudian not embarrassed about it. And just, so let me just go through several points that you've kind of, you know, enervated right now. Okay? So there's no question when you drink, your acuity, your thinking, your memory gets diminished. All right? So by that token, I can understand what you're saying, that if you are beset by the knowledge that you're, they're going to take away your business and the goyim are going to come and kick you out and they're going to puncture your tires and burn your house. You can drink enough to forget about that because you basically are spe- you don't know the difference between you don't know the difference between your mortgage being due or not being due. That's a fact. Okay, now, in terms of, um, so we have your mental faculties go fine, but there are two other things that go on. Let's remember feelings. Your feelings, that's not the same as cognition. Your feelings go down to hell. You get depressed, okay? I can't imagine that being a benefit for anybody except for someone who wants to make somebody morose and make him do tshuva. In fact, I had a very good friend, Chavrusa, actually, in yeshiva, and there was some, um, I would say, some sadistic maniac there, a very bright guy, who, when my friend was drunk, started criticizing him and dumping on him, and my friend went into a nervous breakdown that took about three years, I think two, three years, till he recovered. So alcohol is depressant, and it's terrible for you in terms of you're going to look at your feelings, you won't feel happy about feelings. Then we get to the third part that I mentioned, that's the inhibitions. Now, what I can think about why the post-success is because, let's say, I get along with you, Avremo, right? I'm not going to hug you and kiss you. I just don't do that because of homophobia or whatever else. I just don't do that. When I am drunk, you have a good chance that I'm going to hug you and kiss you. Why? Because I'm not coming up with new feelings. I like you, but my inhibitions are down. My social inhibitions say, don't do this. Everybody will think you're gay. Don't do this because people think you lost your marbles. Don't do this because people think you're going senile prematurely or maturely, whatever you want to do. You won't do it, right? So now... If I have nice feelings, in the Samach of Enosh to me would mean, yes, I'm going to be very demonstrative about it. If I have not 
nice feelings. So I might become a cut up. I might become someone who hurts people, who insults people. So it's just it inhibits. So essentially, you were saying it's a form of therapy. This is what set me off over here. There's no question that you can save a lot of money going to, from going to psychoanalysis or doing dream analysis by getting drunk and asking somebody, like I've done, I've asked my wife or my wife to be say, hey, do me a favor, Esther, tell me what I said. Okay, and she would say, wow. And I say, yeah, this I was aware of this. I was sort of aware of this would take me another, you know, six months or three months with my therapist to get it out. So, yes, it is a way of tuning in to what's going on. Um, but as a package, I can't um, I, I don't get it. I don't okay, get okay, it. But, you know, I guess I wasn't clear. It isn't the drinking is central, but not everything. It's the idea that the Rebbe is not a red the idea that the parrots is not a parrots that that everything is topsy-turvy then a half of so to right, speak that, that, not, that, right that you you can wear an outfit that is completely not appropriate for yourself uh, you right. can dress like a woman and we see that in the italian communities it was very prevalent the the cross dressing and it was actually sanctioned by some of the greatest postcom the idea that the world ain't what you think it is and especially, and, and that was, I think, therapeutic. Uh, not necessarily, you're right, true. Most drunks end up, after the great high and explosion, they end up on the couch either throwing up or crying in their beer, whatever, you, whatever metaphor you want to use. But there is something about the shocking, complete revolutionary experience that is so, it, it, it's so Nirvana-like compared to the dull, ugly oppression that would happen afterwards. So I, wasn't, so I think that's the reason why Purim, in general, meant so much more. I mean, today, okay, so you, have, you dance around and go for tzedakah, and you basically go through the motions. I think for communities up until the 20th century, it was almost like uh, uh, the day of, 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 of complete delight and happiness and a fantasy world. It was like a kid going to Disney World for the first time and just beaming from ear to ear. And that was not only the children of Purim, I think it was the adults as well. And that I think has, because the world ain't so terrible anymore, because we don't have the Cossacks uh, coming for us, I think especially since World War II and the, uh, what's happened in the United States and in Israel, the prosperity Despite what's going on, if you think that the the the, the police are stormtroopers today, which of course is ridiculous, Purim ain't what it used to be, and that's what I'm saying. That's why I think drinking. That's what I was trying. To, my point I was trying to make before: drinking was kept, even though you said Sam Juni says I don't get it. We kept it because it was all part of a of of a certain social experience that we cherished, and we were allowed to hold on to for a day or two and then it disappeared. I think. Uh, yeah, I know yeah, you make sense. Let me throw something out at you a little bit tangential as a yeshivisha expert here. What do you make of the idea that part of the Purim ritual in the yeshivisha circles is to basically deride and make fun of the Rosh Hashiva, usually with their permission. You, it's a roast. And, yeah. and I, I wonder what that is all about. I mean, is it a way of just letting out feelings that you don't let out all year or things? It, because it's kind of odd. It's, okay. and in fact, I remember Yeshiva when I went to, there was an official sub-Rosh Hashiva. They called him the Purim Rebbe, where he would sit up there, he would be dressed up, and the Rosh Hashiva would be playing along and sitting there as if he were a disciple of his. And then the Purim Rebbe would let him have it in terms of prepared critiques. Okay. And sometimes they would take exception. So again, is that some? Is that the is the is the is the rabbi there the equivalent of the Kazakh who's been oppressive? And then we allow them a vent one day a year so the student doesn't explode. It just sounds like it sounds frankly like one of those California uh, mod therapists that came up in the late sixties, early seventies, where they had these therapy techniques where we just off the wall as a way of just getting somebody to blow off steam without much insight, and then keep it under wraps until the next session, so to speak. Okay, that's a good question. Once again, you know, from a scholastic approach, I was, from a scholarly 
perspective. I would say that there has been a lot of um, uh, Chuvos responsive material written um, trying to throw that whole uh, what you're talking about, the, the Purim Rov or the Purim Spiel or the Purim uh, Roast, they've tried to end that. Chochem Avadia, Rabbi Yosef has written extensively how ugly it is. And there has been other voices that have been raised how this is against Kavadah Torah. And they can't, they don't understand how this alien, terrible thing uh, entrenched itself. And we need to do whatever we can to have true simcha. Okay, now, so th- I just want to put that on record, that if, if mm-hmm. somebody would be doing a Google search and looking for sources, they would find a lot of voices that say, no, this, this can't be. Okay, but you and I both know that those are an attempt to sort of rewrite the truth, that really it did entrench itself, even in places of, we would say, great moral striving and in the real yeshiva world it isn't just some sort of alien thing that the that the haskola has planted it was something that was around for hundreds and hundreds of years and especially reached its pinnacle in in some of the hasidish courts and in some of the yeshivas okay so i just want to be honest now what was the purpose of it i think the purpose of it honestly was a way and and again remember who the purim rev is it isn't just some Ferd, who is like the biggest Layutzlach, the Irving Forbish of, 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 of the community, who they just put a spudik on or a, a thing on. It's someone with a very interesting, sort of like a Lenny Bruce, uh, or he's more like Lenny Bruce than Danny Kay. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if you understand what I mean. Yeah. He's somebody who's got a, a, a wicked almost sense of mimicry. And part of it is to send a message to the imperious one in a way because it's Purim that he won't feel hurt and by over exaggerating by perhaps indicating the Rosh Hashiva and Rebbe will actually get the message in a way that though unfortunately couldn't be done during the rest of the year so the Rosh Hashiva will find out in exaggeration, hmm, do I actually have this type of preening and gesticulations that I do? Am I actually so gauche and so obvious and so uncouth sometimes? I know it's an exaggeration, but there's also a message here for me to change. And I think that's what it was about. I think it was a way to send messages to the Rosh Hashiva and the Nahala of how the guys were feeling. And if they listened carefully and if it was done without the clear and and this is the problem without a complete total character assassination you need to be able you know and i don't know if lenny bruce could have done it but there there are other comics maybe jim gaffigan who is a very uh common person today not a jewish one but there's there's a way to sort of make fun for the person to feel a little bit of that embarrassment welling up, a little redness in the cheeks, but also realizing that it was done with a certain sense of love and understanding and hope that, hey, get the message. This is a way for you to change and maybe alter your behavior enough that you, you can do your job better. That's what I would say it was. And, and that, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I just want to give you the counterpart from the, um, shall we say, the subject, not the Lord, but from the subject's point of view. And that is that it gives the subject a chance to express things with a certain amount of cover or impunity saying, I wouldn't say this normally, but I said this, but the point is at least I got it out. There's something I want to get out. I really want to tell this overlord who happens to be someone who is also oppressive, but I can't say it because he's also very kind and maybe he's also my father or my rabbi or whatever, but here I can say it and hide behind the skirt of saying, well, I wasn't completely in control. So it's the same. Now it's, he can receive the message with a certain amount of safety and I as a subject can perhaps express it in a certain way. In a, in a sense, what I'm doing is piggybacking on my understanding of humor that's often used in, in satire, where I'm saying it, but no, no, I only mean it as a joke. So, ha, 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 I don't really mean that. 
or I half mean it, or I quarter mean it, or I certainly wouldn't have said it if I wasn't drunk, so please don't take that seriously. Or really the message is, don't take it too seriously, take it just a little bit seriously, which is what the rabbi who is being critiqued also says, I'm not going to take it totally, but I take it as an indication that something is really happening. Okay. I'll tell you just a little anecdote that, that it still reverberates so wonderfully in my life when i was uh, you know i got drunk for the first time when i was 13 um in yeshiva and really drunk to the point that people talked about it for years and again 13 14 and 15 my three years in high school i finished high school in three years so my three years in high school i you know i was i got smashed every year and um one of the years i i i sort of assaulted the person who was at that point single, but he was considered the most important scholar, the, the, the best bocher in the yeshiva. He is now the Rosh Yeshiva of Ner Yisrael. And um, I went over to him and I said, you're so cold, you're like a robot or something like that. You know, you're so robotic-like, you know, you, you don't you, you don't smile. You know, here I am, you know, you, you have to recognize something like that was my message. Um, and I would never have done that, of course, had it not been Purim. Since that time, we are, we don't see each other often, but whenever we do, it's incredible. Because he came over to me afterwards, and this was the best guy in the yeshiva. I'll say who it is, Svi Berkowitz, Rav Svi Berkowitz, who is, of Aaron Feldman is somehow, you know, the titular of a yeshiva, but the most important rabbinic presence in that uh, school, in near Israel, near Israel, is Rabbi Rav Svi Berkowitz, son-in-law of Shmuel Kamenetsky, and also really, you know, one of the greatest Talmudic thinkers and, and, and glottic cup, as we say. And after that time, he was so happy to see me afterwards. And we have the greatest relationship whenever we see each other. And I know that it's a byproduct of this 14-year-old or 15-year-old, uh, you know, jumping through the social uh, you know, taboos and, and being able to tell him what, what I thought he was missing. And he, by the way, the, the, I don't know if I helped him, but the Bokram love him. They say he's one of the best confidants that they you could come on to anyway and it's all due because of the nascent rabbi kirilevich okay okay cool. I, I wasn't I'm, I'm just saying he got the message from enough people to actually become this great rosh Hashiva, which he is right now uh including my own I, i'm gonna say i had a little thumbnail in it um let me ask you something else um Okay, I still have to get one more point in that I had to what was saying, but ask your question. I'll okay, I, I, I mentioned in my intro, my meandering intro about social drinking. And you mentioned, you know, you threw out a statement that again, I, I got drunk on Purim. I didn't get, I don't get drunk during the year. Um, and I don't get drunk anymore because as I told you, certain inhibitions, because since I've been married, okay, I put all, I put everything on the table for you, uh, Herr Professor. But you talked about drinking socially. You talked about getting smashed or whatever, drinking every weekend. Before we started recording, I mentioned to you also, I thought that this idea, which I, which I picked up from Hollywood movies and television, that you drink socially, you know, as soon as you come home, boy, did I have a tough day, Alice, at work. Give me something to drink. Or, oh, you look terrible. Take a drink. Can you can you respond to that a little bit? We talked about Purim and drinking to excess. What about the idea of of of, of having drinks every day or drinking whenever things are a little bit tough coming home and having a drink? Or as you said, you know, every every weekend, you know, people would get drunk. I, I have a feeling, and maybe I'm wrong, that that the same, you know, people cringe at that today. I don't think it's done as much. Could you could you explain? Do, do you think that's healthy? Uh, uh, that type of thing of, of having a little shot every single day or coming home and getting a, a, a little bit of a, 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 a little bit of scotch or a little bit of vodka or, and, and somehow that can get you through the night. Is, is that, is that healthy? I can just say that um, I, I sense over here that there, at least the way you presented that there has been a shift in social values. I can tell you that um, during my formative years, Taking the edge off was the ritual that we had regularly. I mean, I would have, I wouldn't get drunk every night because I had responsibilities probably. I don't know if I would have done that otherwise. And I was not an alcoholic, but a drink 
or two at night, very standard, very standard for us. And I remember even when the kids were around, we got into the habit of stocking the liquor cabinet with drinks and with peanuts. So when mom and dad would have a drink at night, they would get peanuts and it became an association for them because I can tell you there's a ritual in the Hasidic background I come from that you have to have a drink of, of liquor between the fish and the meat dishes on Shabbat. So, of course, we would have that drink and the kids knew you eat peanuts between <laughs> fish. <laughs> so, and, and again, I don't think looking back on it that it really messed up my judgment or my life and that it was particularly defensive, but it was, it was phrased, literally, take, it, take the edge off. You know you've had a hard day. My wife and I both had really responsible jobs, you know, hair-trigger decisions a lot of the day, and you take the edge off, not get drunk. Now, that's not the explanation for why I would get drunk during weekends. I would get drunk, drunk during weekends because that's what the Hevra did, and that was fitting in socially. It's not that I was afraid that if I wouldn't do it, they'd say, Sam, you're a loser. But that's, you know, this is what you did. You made some jokes. You did this. You did that. You, you went to whatever kind of entertainment and you drank during weekends. Is it healthy? I don't see in retrospect that that particular um, genre of people who grew up, I'm talking about just post-Vietnam or during Vietnam, I don't see them as mentally or psychologically less adjusted than people today. And I trust you, you know, because you're more in touch with young people. I am not. <laughs> I talk only to old people and to you occasionally. So, no. Uh, so uh, I don't know what it's like. But if there is a shift, I can't say that the place is any more healthier. I don't think it's sicker. So if I have to judge based on large cohorts, I would say, yeah, I felt it was so, fine, uh, so, and I still feel it was fine. So, but again, so, don't confuse don't confuse that with Adelaide Yoda. Yeah, I, I, I'm not. I'm just. This is just sort of related. But so, therefore, you would say even today, and and, and the pressures, you know, during COVID, post COVID, are definitely <laughs> probably probably matching what you were going through in the '60s and '70s. Of course. Of course. So, so you would say it. Your psychological, medical, you know. Uh, opinion is that there's nothing wrong with taking the edge off. There's nothing wrong with dulling your senses a little bit uh, every exactly. evening. I like the a little bit there. I don't like the dulling the senses. Because unfortunately, I have known, of course, people who were substance abusers, and they don't dull it a little bit. They basically back out. Yeah. Okay. Let me get to the thing that's, that I was wondering about. Okay? Go ahead. And that's, again, this the very yeshivish and Hasidish circles. It's the phenomenon of Purim Torah. And Purim, and I, again, I have heard very, I remember the Rebbe said Purim, okay? And basically what they did is they took Pilpul and carried it to absurdity to the point that it made no sense. And it was convoluted, it was, not convoluted, it was consequent. So long as you're willing to ignore certain basic premises, they made whole arguments and structures. And the way I saw it from my theory of humor is that they were basically knocking the whole method of Talmudic study. And I had a hard time with that because just as like we understand that perhaps there is a value in a minor, moderate knocking of the Rosh Hashiva under the guise that you're being drunk, what was their agenda here? Were they saying that all this is irrelevant or it's just sophistry, because that's what it came about. They'd have this big purple, and the conclusion was that Shabbos is really Sunday. Okay, you know, uh, the conclusion was that I'm really you, and you're really me, and, uh, and, and based on, and, and they would show a lot of uh, knowledge, they would use actual citations of Rishonim, Achronim, Chuvis, but just with one or two major distortions of assumptions, they would come all the way in loony land. I don't know what was going on there. I still don't get it other than a, uh, a latent way of saying, I feel uncomfortable with a lot of aspects of what's going on over here. Wow. It doesn't sound like that. <laughs> wow. You know, here you're really surprising me because, you know, you know, here, you, you know, you've got your Freudian uh, glasses on and you're saying, why are they so farhopped by this Purim tire? Maybe what's really underneath it is, is a latent, a uh, sense of wanting to dismiss this thing that they're so committed to. Unfortunately, that's what I'm diagnosing. 
I'm not, okay. I'm, and I'm asking it as a question. I'm saying, what All do right. you make of it? Because I can't make anything of it. Okay, so, I don't okay, well, you know, put the, you know, I, I'm gonna look. I'm, you know, we don't rehearse this, and I was so happy what you said earlier that you'd like to hug me, and and you consider me a friend. He said, "I'm that's because I had a drink." That's <laughs> I hear you. because it's the time difference. You in Israel, you had to yes, have a yes. drink when you it's came. Time for my evening drink. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to I'm going to respond here. Um, look, uh, you know, especially if you live in the world uh, of, of, of Shas and Paiskam and Pilpul and things like that, you definitely realize that there are pers- there is a certain distinctness of, of, of the way of Talmudic thinking. And some of it is actually could be taken to absurd conclusions. And and yet you relish what you're doing you realize that there it's an art of what's happening and and when it's lampooned and you're right it's only a good lampoon if you could somehow use the real stuff right the better satire is when you can actually let me give you an example you didn't read mad magazine when you were uh growing yes, up i used to read it from cover to cover okay, including that- all the cartoons Around them. Okay, I'm not, okay, so, okay, okay, so that's the Sergio Aragonos, those, those, um, you know, uh, Gainus. Gainus. <laughs> right, yes. right. So that was like, you know, all the, uh, or Al Jaffe, all these little marginalias all around, yes. yes. But but there was another part that I don't with, think you appreciated. Text, as I'm concerned, the beta text, hands down. Right. But there was parts that I liked. And, and which was the the lampoons of the films and television shows. Now those uh-huh. were things that, that and, and 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 they were they were in some of these movies I never saw, but I knew about it from the Mad Magazine satire. And I knew about them from Saturday Night Live. How's yeah, that? right, right, right. Thank so, you. for example, one of the programs that was uh, the movies that was satirized in Mad Magazine was called Two Thousand and One. A, uh, a, a, it was called, space a, but they called it a space idiocy, right? Because it was completely, because <laughs> it was completely, the, the film broke all conventions of narrative because it was going, where was this thing, right? It was a film that was sort of an art film that had this big idea that nobody really could figure out what the hell it was about. And Mad Magazine lampooned it perfectly, but what made the lampoon great was the artistry of Mort Drucker who was able to capture in his in his caricatures the face and the aspect of the people that were in it the more true his caricatures were the more real the satire was the more it actually spoke to you so if i would just you know say gobbledygook but if I'm actually quoting Rishayim, I'm quoting a famous case quoting an Asibus, quoting something which people know and then having fun with it and showing where it could actually be used in some fantastic, ridiculous way. I'm actually, in a way, satir- I, 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 am, I am satirizing what I usually do. I'm having fun with it. And, and the fact is, is that it's really sort of, Shmilo, I will say, uh, it, it, it's sort of an artistic pastiche. And in a way, as we say, uh, imitation is a great form of flattery. It is a way to actually love the thing even more. When, when you actually are able to, uh, to, 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 to make it, to individualize it and talk about it, the satire of the Purim Torah is actually a way to love the Torah even more is what I would say. Yes, it brings out some of the, the, the ways that when we're, we are in the, the pilpul, where it could really go off the rails, but it generally doesn't. Mm. When you allow, when you give you an example of the pilpil going off the rails, in a way, you are really reaching into the depths of the artistry of what that pilpil is. And and I think Purim Torah is, is in a way a love letter to pilpil. Pilpul Torah, yeah, there, there might be, a, it might be a warning not to do this and not to do that and be on the straight or narrow. But it's really a way to actually love things. I'll tell you, I, 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 there's something that struck my fancy recently. Um, I read about a, um, uh, I don't know if I could ever see it, but it's a, um, uh, it, it, it's a play 
that was put together in Los Angeles. It's it's all it's all about the Peanuts characters growing up and becoming maladjusted adults and and changing completely and or really extending themselves from what they were. Um, Schroeder is this gay uh, pop musician. Um, uh, Pigpen is a is 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 a is a homeless man living on the street. Um, you know, and you know, uh, everybody grows up, and it's it's a film, it's it's a, it's a play that, in a way, loves its original source material, even though you would say what, right? Because if think about those characters developing and changing and turning into adults is a way of bringing something that you love, like the Peanuts cartoon, into your life. I would say the same thing is true about these Purim tires. The type of incredible speculation and fantasies about it, and to the point that it's almost ridiculous, is is really showing how crucial it was in your life. That, that's. I hope I've answered the question. I think I've. I've yeah. tried. Anyway, I have several free associations to what you're saying. When you're talking about peanuts, I was thinking basically of some of the writings of Rabbi Tversky. Sure. Of memory who used peanuts as a way of teaching but i have another interesting association with mad magazine and um so let me say this um the way you you analyze this thing about gamara i'm thinking i've been at several funerals okay and what the people did at the funerals people got up to speak they were funny and what they basically did is they took certain quirks of the nifter of the deceased and made fun of it in an endearing way. It was a way of saying, I can show you that even by knocking this person, he's still lovable. So it's almost like saying, like you were saying about the Talmud, you you kind of show how it can be absurd or whatever, but that kind of indicates some kind of familiarity and even a, 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 a close feeling to it. And I also wanted to associate to, Mad, to, to your Mad Magazine stuff. There's a great series of books that I've actually used in graduate school, and they all end up being called for beginners. Okay? There's Freud for beginners, Einstein for beginners, theoretical physics for beginners, economic, and they all use around the pages the same kind of cartoons that Mad Magazine used. So in other words, the satire, almost they're satirizing, whatever they say, they do a satirizing um, a nullification using mad stuff. And that kind of allows the reader who's grappling with crazy ideas of quantum physics to let off steam like several times a page before they attack the notion again. Like I in particular use the Freud for beginners text for graduate students to make sure that they can say, instead of telling Junie this is crazy this is or whatever, okay, so on every page you'll have three times the vent. But once you do that, they, and I found they were able to tune into the real salient points after they were able to vent off the stuff. So I see it as sort of being able to take a drink to take the edge off or being able to use um, um, a constant reminder saying, but is this really absurd or is it not? I, I don't know if I'm free associating or making some sense. No, no, the, I, I, the effect I, I, of the drink and a half that I've had already tonight. Okay. I, <laughs> all right. A drink became a drink and a half. I think we all know that. As that, we were speaking. Yeah. Oh, people don't realize this is only audio. They, I, I don't. I guess I should see you sneaking this drink in. I see Esther's bringing you your 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 your, 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 your nightcap. Yeah. What I would say is is that learners, you know, we all learn in different ways, and I think part of what the 21st century really knows is that it isn't all about lecturing straightforward or reading straightforward. You do need these little sidebars. You do need these cartoons. You do need these other things to to touch. You need to interact with the material, so to speak, right. rather than take it. And that's what we're doing when we take these exceptions, like Purim, maybe. I don't know. That's an interesting... I've not thought of it, but it's nice that you mentioned it. Yeah, I, I think that's... I, I put it this way. I would say, getting back to your original question, there might be a kid... Who, because he heard the Purim Torah, actually will now love learning more. Because uh-huh. of the, yeah. be, be, till that time, it, it, it's not the absurdity like you were saying, this is crazy, I really hate this, and I'm stuck in this thing, and now I'm making fun of it to show that I hate it. It's actually a way to relish it and love it. The same way, as I said, I loved, I came to love classic movies because I read the satire in Mad Magazine. And it was because of the exactitude of Mort Drucker's pictures 
that I actually got into the to, to many of the film stars because of what he was able to do in, in portraying them. And I think that's that's really, I think, what's going on. Let's end with this this point. Let me just say, and, and, and just to push that, and perhaps if you're able to do a socialized Purim version of Critique towards the Rosh Hashiva, that is a vent of some sort that then allows you to relate to him at the different levels, especially if he responds in kindness well, rather than in vilifying. Right, but, which is similar to what I did to Tzvi Berkowitz. Yes, now, yes. In, in, in other words, the fact was Tzvi Berkowitz was shocked that this 14-year-old kid almost tackled him on Purim and then, then whispered into his ear, why can't you be a, why are you a robot? Or whatever it was. But it, it actually fostered a, a great relationship from that point on. And I was forced to something, not only in terms of his reaction, but in terms of your reaction towards him. Exactly. Now that you were able to say that, now you can relate to him as a whole person rather than just look at this little bit that's bugging right. your nose. Right, and, there, and therefore when the Rosh Hashivas, as you say, have the elegance, and they don't become, they, they don't take the Chacham Avadi's shield and say, this is Chilul Hashem, and look what you've done to someone, and right, look how you've destroyed this person, and this is not Kavad Atayra, then you sort of say, oh boy, I guess this is a world I'm not even part of. When, right. When, when the person who's been quote-unquote roasted actually has a big smile and is actually loving to you, you see that there's something bigger than the personality. And you see that mm-hmm. the person is really connected to a great thing that is able even to deal with uh, satire and, 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 and being made fun of. Because really, the person is part of something great. Look, I, I, you know, there's part of what we need, I think, especially today, Shmilu, is is not more grumbling and angry responses. What we what we need is in the face of somebody who lets out a snarl, a smile. There's a lot of people snarling at each other and and, and trying to, to 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 pick up the worst insults. Isn't it great when the person reacts with with a sense of of, of of gratitude even. You know, I'm happy that you pointed that out. Let's be positive and, and, and actually shows that they actually can join you as opposed to uh, being as your, your enemy. All right. Well, I think on this note, this positive note, let's wish everybody a, uh, a Freilichen Oder and Purim uh, as we move on. Um, drink responsibly, my friends. Uh, I know that COVID is probably pushing a lot of people to say, boy, do I need a drink to take the edge off. Remember what you heard today about uh, how you know about your impairment and and what it could lead to. Take care, Shmuel. Thanks a lot. Have a have a happy. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 